thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our study of the book of Numbers, and we're going to be covering chapter 13 through 15. I hope you have taken the time to read these chapters. Um, it is important that you keep up with your readings as we go through these studies, so you can follow um, with uh, you can follow the study a little bit better. And uh, reading the chapters might evoke some questions you may have about particular parts, and that will also help you to deepen your understanding of. Um, what these uh, chapters are all about. Tonight, there are quite a bit of, um, uh, you know, the, the, quite a, the terrain we want to cover is quite wide, and we'll see how well we do. Uh, fundamentally, chapter 13 is about the sending forth of scouts to go and reconnoiter the promised land. Chapter 14 is the reports that these scouts bring back and the response of the people. And then God's response to the whole debacle. And chapter 15 is a set of laws that are given by God in answer to what had happened before. And there's quite a, there are a number of lessons for us that are extremely important that we need to uh, highlight. So, First, we're going to cover the, the fact that the scouts are chosen. That's chapter 13, verse 1 through 20. Then we, we'll talk a little bit about the expedition into the promised land, 21 through 24. Then the report that the scouts make when they come back, 25 through 33. Then in chapter 14, we'll deal with the people's response. That's verses 1 through 5. The counter-response of Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful scouts, and God's response in 11 through 38. And then the uh, people's expedition after God's response. And that's 39 through 45. Then we will go through a number of laws that God gave in chapter 15. Um, some dealing with the accompaniment to a sacrifice. That's in 1 through 16. And then the first of the dough, a priestly emolument, which is in 17 through 21, mostly will focus on, on the inadvertent brazen wrongdoing, which, is, which has some very important lessons for us. And then, obviously, the case of the wood gatherer. If you've read it, you probably are wondering about that particular case, the case of the wood gatherer, which is chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. So once more, the context, they have left... Sion, they have left 
Mount Zion. They are on their way to the Holy Land. They're approaching. And then a decision is made to send scouts. The first thing we want to, um, that is important for us to point out from the text is that, well, let's first talk about who is being sent. Uh, Moses' intention could, have, could, could only have been to send a cross-section of the tribal leaders so that their hopefully positive report would dispute the people's self-doubt concerning their ability to conquer the land. So fundamentally, the mission that Moses entrusted to these leaders was not a spying mission. It wasn't a military mission. It was more a public relationship mission. Sort of send the leaders of these people up. They'll, they'll go and see for themselves and come back and give the good news that, yes, the land is as it was described, and yes, we can take it. That was presumably Moses' intent in choosing these people. Now, all of these men are dignitaries. And one of them is, one who's highlighted is Caleb. Now, the name Caleb is, means what you think it means if you uh, understand Arabic. It means dog. Right? Caleb, exactly the same name. Uh, what is very interesting is that if you um, consider the name in Akkadian, so the name is very old. Right? It goes back to Akkadian. You would have the construction Kalbisin or Caleb Marduk, which means the dog of the god so-and-so. And by dog was implied uh, a servant who is uh, faithful. So it's the positive aspect of a dog that is being highlighted here, not the negative aspect that we may infer when we speak of a dog today. Right? Likewise, when Jesus says it is not lawful to give the food of the children to the dogs... The word dog used there was not meant to indicate people who were uh, of lower social standing. Jesus was not trying to insult them. But dog back then was used to indicate those who were unclean. Because the dog, as an animal, was considered unclean. Right? And so in the parable, when he, for instance, says that the poor man Lazarus sat at the doorstep of the rich man, and he says even dogs came and licked his wounds... Well, the implication was that he was constantly in a state of uncleanness because he was being licked by dogs. He didn't mean it to say, oh, you know, the good, nice, cute puppies came and com- comforted him, which is yet another superimposition we have from our own context on the, on the, on the culture back then that was not Jesus' intent. Right? So we have to be careful with the, with the imagery and naming of the word. We can, must use them in the proper context. You know, the names change and... and uh, the, the, the meaning of a word will vary from even within our culture from period to period, right? So it used to be that we could say, you know, they had a gay time. Well, no longer would you say that today. Uh, you would say of an event that the event was queer to mean strange. Well, you can't say that again. You, you, the meaning has shifted, but if we go back and read text in our context, we have to make sure we don't backfill the meaning with our own, because then we completely shift the meaning of the text. Right? So, he's basically the faithful servant. That's the intent behind that image. The obedient servant. Right? And that's the name he carries. Now, Joshua is the other faithful spy, and Joshua, uh, really Yehoshua, originally from Ho- Hosea, is, um, 
is, is a name that probably was unknown before the Exodus, well, that's according to some of the rabbis, because it has the Tetragrammaton in it, the disclosure of God's name. Yet, we also know that in Genesis, the name Yahweh was used as well. So, uh, not really clear. Anyhow, <clears throat> two of the key names here that are being used. Now, they are going to, into the, uh, to, to um, spy on the land during the season of the first ripe grapes, and that would be July-August, right? Right around July-August, and that would be the, the feast during which the, uh, there would be a celebration of the Festival of First Fruits. All right. So now, the expedition. The key is to, 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 uh, to remember is that the, I'm not going to talk necessarily about the details of where they're going. I want to point out uh, what is very important, first and foremost, is that the expedition, sending out the spies, was not something willed by God. God had never an intent for them to send scouts. It was something the people themselves demanded. And we know that because God left it up to Moses to name the people. It was a Moses' action. It wasn't a God's action. When God decides on something, He doesn't need us to go ahead of Him and figure out how He's going to do something. Right? He leads, we follow. Here, they're getting ahead of themselves. They want to be in the leadership position and go get themselves a sense of what is going to happen and how He's going to be able to, how things are going to get organized. So, the lesson for us is when God gives us a signal to go do something, right? Sometimes spending a lot of time in over-planning things is sort of the opposite of what he wants, right? When he, he gives us a single signal to go, he will take care of the details. He will provide the details. And I'll talk about this a little later in a, different, in a, in a, in a separate context. All right, before we get into the, the reports, though, there's a couple of things we should mention. Um, you probably read that they talk particularly about a group of people called the Anakim in, the, in that chapter. They mention the Anakim particularly and the Rephaim. Well, the idea is that the, um, these guys would be the descendants of the giants, the Rephaim. And the Anakim would be their descendants. And that they, will li- they lived uh, along the Philistines. Four of them were slain by David's warriors in the, in the second book of Samuel, uh, chapter 21, verse 18 through 22. And their most famous representative is Goliath, right, who was slain by David himself in f- the first book of Samuel, chapter 17. Now, there is, though, a different way of looking at it. You might say that someone is a giant because of his stature. But you might also argue that someone is a giant because of the buildings. If you go in some place and all the buildings are tall and big and wide, you'd wonder, giants live here? Why is it so big? Right? Conversely, if you go to some place and all the you know, doors are small and narrow, and you wonder, you know, what's going on? Very short people living here? You sort of assume you, or you, you, expect, you conclude something about the, the height or strength or width of people based on the buildings. Well, in, in, in the land of Canaan, the fortresses were big. So you would have fortresses that would measure 
So the walls of ancient Canaanite cities were anywhere from 9 to 15 meters high. So you're talking 30 to 50 feet high. And they could be sometimes up to 15 feet thick. All right? So high walls, thick walls. And when you're standing before something like this, especially coming from Egypt, being of a nomadic background now, you'd wonder, are these giants living here? So that could be also the reason why they spoke of giants. All right, very good. Now, uh, one more thing I'll point out is when they come back, they brought with them a single cluster of grapes, and it took two men to carry it. And the whole idea was to emphasize how rich the land was, right? So they just are emphasizing how rich the land was. I remember when I was in Lebanon up in the mountain, I was visiting some friends in the summertime, and the, the father of these friends had a little garden where he planted different things, among which were the toma- tomatoes. He planted tomatoes. And he was in the garden, and he let a, a shout, and we ran to see what was this all about, and he picked this tomato, and literally, it must have been a, a six-pound tomato. I mean, it was the size of a watermelon. It was huge. So, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with all these... Um, these um, competition on growing uh, pumpkins, right? Pumpkins can grow to incredible sizes, and zucchinis as well, right? Just monstrous sizes, right? So anyhow, the idea was that the the land was rich, and they brought that back with them. Now, when they come back, the scouts give a balanced report of their findings. So on the one hand, they emphasize the positive. Then they essentially provide a detailed description of the obstacles, clearly implying that they favor abandoning the idea of conquering the land. That was the majority report. The minority report was Caleb and Joshua, mostly Caleb speaking. And it was, no, 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 we can overtake him because the fundamental reason, God is with us. That's it. So he acts on faith, they're acting on pure reason. So when you act on pure reason and your reason is set against faith, your reason is unreasonable. So, reason apart from faith is unreasonable. And we see it here. Why? Because God is with them. He's with them. He took them out of Egypt. He's been with them. When they're hungry, He I mean, He's there all along, and then now suddenly they act as if it's only them. They never mention God. It's all about them taking on this action. When we do that, we become unreasonable. So, Caleb tells them, no, 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 we can do that. Then those guys make their, their, their objection explicit. The inhabitants were so powerful and of such size that the scouts felt like grasshoppers. Furthermore, they say, the land you sent us to, talking to Moses, the land, not the land which the Lord promised. You can see the outlook. You can see the outlook. Despite everything God did for them, they are still in that mode. Not only unappreciative, but really unbelieving or disbelieving what the Lord had done for them. Which, again, I wish to highlight one more time the powerful psychological dimension to Scripture. Scripture is very realistic. I think if we were to sit down and write Scripture, it would sound like a Disney movie. You know, uh, God came, I mean, first there were these people in poor, bad situation that were really suffering because there's an evil guy, Pharaoh, who was all over them, right? Then the hero shows up, 
And he comes in the first time, and then he has to run away because he's not prepared. That'd be Moses. Then he goes and he prepares. Then he comes, and then people don't follow him initially, but then they follow him, and then he goes against the evil guy, and there's the major battle at the end, and then he wins, and then what's the conclusion? And they lived happily ever after, right? Well, Scripture is saying, "Uh uh-uh. It just does not work like this. More often than not, they were damned happily for a long, long time, which sort of forces us to think about our own response to God. How do we respond to acts of grace when God comes to us? What is our response? And in many, many ways, these poor Israelites in in the desert are in mirror image of us. When you look at yourself in the mirror, if you look really, really hard, if you stand and you look for the long time, you'll start to see the camels behind you in that mirror. You'll see the camp and the tent and the desert. You'll see who you are right there. And I'll show you how in a couple, in, once we, we go through this a little longer. All right. So they tell... Moses, that the land indeed flow with milk and honey. No problem. They speak factually as far as the land is concerned. Meaning, the, uh, it has a, the soil is rich. It has good fruits. Then they start saying the cities are fortified. And they fall into slander. They fall into slander when they say, the citizens of this land are like giants, so tall that we look like grasshoppers. It's a slander. Why? Who are they slandering? God. Exactly. Exactly. God. So, it is taking... What is slander? Slander is taking a fact about someone and twisting it just enough, just enough, to put a negative twist to it. Okay? Just enough to put a negative twist to it. And... Gossip is different. Gossip is sharing information unnecessarily. Gossip is sharing information unnecessarily, even if it's a true information. It, a gossip feeds curiosity. So curiosity is a vice, and gossip is a vice that derives from curiosity. Hmm? Slander is taking a truth and twisting it to present it into a negative, give it a negative outlook. You have to be careful with these things. Very careful. All right. So slander, which does not have some of the truth in the beginning, will not be accepted in the end. You just remove a couple of things to make sure they will not be accepted. That's what you do. Right? So the scouts began with the truth, a favorable report, so as not to arouse suspicion, and ended with slander. Most often, most often, we tend to do the same when we want to sway someone to our opinion. We give him a bit of good news, preparing the terrain to, for the person to accept our opinion as truth. So one thing we all have to be very careful with is allowing the will to make a decision before all facts have been appropriately examined meaning that we need to train our will to remain in a position of indifference. So what does that mean? You want to go on vacation. Should you go? Should you not go? 
the will must remain indifferent until all facts have been examined. Then the will makes a decision. But more often than not, the will already determined, I am going. Now I just have to go through this, uh, the red tapes so I can convince somebody I have to go. You have a job. You really like the job. You won't take the job likewise. Right? So you already made the decision and now you're backfilling the argument so you can explain why you made the decision. That is unwise. Wisdom says, remain completely neutral. Do not allow your will to bend the decision one way or the other until facts have been properly examined. Then you make a decision. In their case, they've already bent the truth because their will was set on Egypt. So even if God were to, were to present them with, a, with the land on a platter, they would probably still say, oh, look, the platter is dirty. Right? So part of the calumny is to say that the land will devour its settlers. Now that's an expression that connotes two things. Number one, that the, the inhabitants of the land are such warriors that they will overtake us. So um, the expression back then were to say that you would go and eat a city. It doesn't mean you're eating the city or, you know, the expression you devour. It means you overtake, you subdue, you win. Hence, when they said these are giants and we look like grasshoppers, they mean that two things. Number one, their strength is so great they will overtake us easily. But number two, a grasshopper is the tiniest edible thing in the region. Remember St. John the Baptist? He was eating grasshoppers, right? So therefore, they can devour us so easily. They can overtake us. We have no strength to resist them. That's what they're saying. That's the message that they're passing on to... um, And the second explanation for a land that devours its settlers is because the land is um, infertile. It's unable to sustain those who live there, which is in direct contradiction to the first statement they made, saying that it's a land that flows with milk and honey. So now they moved away from the truth. They're contradicting themselves because they are determined to make an argument that we should not go there. Hence, when you combine these two together, you have uh, inhabitants who are really strong and who can overtake us, and the land is infertile, it would mean that we have to fight over resources with folks who are stronger than us. Therefore, when we go there, we're going to be in a state of constant war. It isn't just that getting there is difficult, and staying there will be difficult. So the picture they painted is fundamentally a negative one. Starting with a positive one, they now completely overturn it into something completely negative. And then last thing, they effectively identify these tall people with the Nephilim. Now, if you recall from the book of Genesis, the Nephilim were the giants of old before the flood. And many falsely interpret this to mean that they are the fruits, that the, 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 the fruits of unions between demons and women. But the truth is that they really are the children of the union between the sons of um, Set, the, the, the rightful line, and the daughters of Cain. That's who they are. However, if people are convinced that the Nephilim are these giants that are almost compared to gods, 
So now, not only have they instilled fear in the hearts of the Israelites in telling them that there's these giants over there, but they've taken this and turned them into folks who are, who are effectively a primordial force of almost of divine dimension. So they added a spiritual aura to them to say that they are far above us, not only physically, but spiritually making it absolutely impossible for the folks to think about even overtaking them. So that's essentially how they come across. Now, how do the people react? So they are fundamentally demoralized by the scouts' report. They panic and rail against Moses and even suggest finding another leader to take them back to Egypt. You see this constant refrain of going back to Egypt. As soon as they are confronted with a difficulty, going back to Egypt. So in that particular case, what is the chief virtue they're lacking here? No, not trust. Fortitude. Fortitude. The virtue of fortitude is that virtue which gives us the courage to undertake, to to bear great difficulties so that we may achieve great things for the Lord. Meaning that's the virtue that keeps us going even in the face of great difficulties. Courage is facing a danger, facing to something that threatens us. Fortitude is mundane. There is no danger to face. There's just the inner force to continue to persevere in doing what we're doing despite great difficulties and great setbacks. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. You try, you try, you try, you fail, you fail, you fail. You keep on trying. That keep on trying, that's fortitude. That is an essential virtue in overcoming sins. It is one of the four cardinal virtues that we need. And because of our baptism, God raises it to the supernatural level by giving us a fortitude that transcends human reason. So we can persevere even in the face of of what seems absolutely impossible odds. That's what they're lacking, fortitude. It's not patience. No. Patience, patience does not require me to try over and over and over. Patience may be a situation where I have to put up with an ailment I have. I just have to put up with it. It's sort of a, the ability to stay put where you are and not let go, not fall back. Fortitude moves you forward. Do you understand? Do you understand how they play together? Yeah, they're all connected and interrelated. And keep in mind, when you hear me speak of virtues, at the end of the day, they are all facets of personality. I mean, we're not, we're not a compartment. We don't have a compartment in us. You know, here's the red button is for fortitude and the blue one is for, you know, and you can look and see what the gauge level is, how much fortitude, and it doesn't work this way. These are categories we use to speak of different, of, of, of the soul. But the soul is unified. Yeah? Everything is connected. Yes. That's why St. Jose Maria Escriva would say, what is a Christian? A Christian is one that begins and begins again. Right? You never give up. There is no giving up. There is no giving up. If you really believe in God's mercy, you don't give up. Simple as that, right? Okay. All right, so... That's what, where, where they start. And then, now, they move from panic to regrets. Notice how 
the evil one now comes in with his inclination and he instills in them regrets. If only we have died, if only we might die, where? In Egypt. So now, regrets. I've told you many, many times, regret is not the working of the Holy Spirit. Conversion is. Sorrow for sin is. Not regrets. Regrets is a, um, is a fruit of pride. Because regret is saying, I, I am ashamed that I have done so, such and such. I wish I, it's all about me. It's uh, the inability to accept my, that I can fail. To accept that I'm a creature. To accept that I am a sinner. To accept that I need redemption. So regret is something you do not want. You want compunction. You want sorrow. You want conversion. Right? That's what you want. So they regret. And then, and then, from regret to accusation, why is the Lord doing this? And they themselves conclude, and actually the conclusion is uh, um, in Deuteronomy, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27, it is because he hates us. Right? Which is exactly what the devil wants. Everything, what the devil wants is to, for you to believe that good is evil and evil is good. That is the... Um, most elaborate, most sophisticated fruit of, of vice to make you believe that good is evil and evil is good. Because once you make this inversion, truth is no longer accessible to you and you're damned. Unless you obviously come back. But coming back is hard once you are in that mindset. This is what he wants. That's where they go. All right? Better for us, again in contrast to the purported evil of the Lord. So they just heap it upon themselves. Better for us to go to Egypt. Now, Egypt is forbidden by the, by the covenant. I took you from Egypt, you're not going to go back. So what are they saying? They're saying, better for us to go back to Egypt to our former ways when we were slaves. Because what they really want is the material goods. Now, let me show you how this is so relevant to our own times. Let's replace, just replace the promised land with children. Having a large family. Now, we start by, everybody does that. Everybody affirms that they love children. Most people love children. They start by affirming the good. They love children. Then comes the reasonable objections. Who has time? Can't do it now. It's beyond us. Right? Then we meet the giants, right? It's the land of giants. One of the giants is education. How am I going to be able to pay afford education? How am I going to be able to afford this? Economy is the giant. Can't do that. What is really in the back of people's mind when they do all that stuff? It's all, it's, to begin with, the, God has, is nowhere in the picture. God, who in His covenant said, trust me and I will make all this happen to you, He's gone. He's not there. It's us. Obviously, we can't go and conquer this land. We're not strong enough. Better yet, go back to Egypt. Go back to our material comfort. Over time, over time, what happens? We make good look evil. Anybody who can ask us to have a large family is crazy. The church is cr- I don't want the church in my... Get the church out of my bedroom. You see? And we make evil look good. Oh yeah, we have two kids and we're so proud of them. They're going to university. They're doing really good. It's just great. No different. 
this whole generation, our parent generation, fell into that trap. Yes. Yeah. How is it, does it happen? How did it happen that in, in matters of days or months, the Lord is with them, just took them from Egypt, did all these signs, He opened the sea for them, they were there, they saw the mountain quake, the whole nine, the whole thing. How did, how did they, right? I think there are, the, re, the, the, the answer is multifaceted. The answer is multifaceted. And I don't have a, a simple answer to give you, but a couple of things. Having lots of children on its own, does not mean you have a life of faith. Because it is entirely possible that our grandparents and those before them, had they had access to contraception, they would have already used it. It's a question of technology. What, there's a difference between them and us is technology. There isn't a generation where they went, oh no, we're not doing this. And a generation after came and did it. We went from a generation that had no access to contraception to the generation that had access to it. Therefore, it is not necessarily true we can conclude that our grandparents were saints and our parents were sinners. It doesn't work that way, right? Fundamentally, fundamentally, it is the neglect of the faith. The neglect of the truth of the faith that ought to be lived day in, day out and understanding what our destiny is. And it happens constantly in history that people forget what the faith is all about and do not teach it to their children. I think, I think what we can say with certainty is that the, the folks who contracept end up having kids who contracept. So that is compounding the, the problem, absolutely. You can say that because they were open to life, whether they want it or not, at least they were open to life. Oh, definitely. Yes, absolutely. You can see it. I mean, you don't have to need, you don't need the faith and you do not need uh, um, uh, scripture to see that their times were, in many ways, far more blessed than ours. You had, you know, you did not have the divorce rate that we have today. You do not have the confusion that we have today. You don't have the violence that we have today. You don't have. You, they didn't have kids killing kids. You didn't have terrorism. You didn't have um, uh, women forced to, uh, to to raise their children on their own. You didn't have the kind of. Um, um, use of drugs, pornography, um, uh, uh, violence within the family, men beating their wives. To, I mean, you had these issues, but it was not to the proportion and degree that we have it today. Right? You didn't have um, many of these things that fall upon us today, which are the result, the direct result of the sin that has spread into the family. Yeah. This is, I mean, it doesn't take a... Uh, a, uh, um, it doesn't take an act of prophecy to see that their lives were far more blessed because they had a much greater opportunity to attain into heaven than people who live today. Right? I mean, we all know many of us come back to the faith as if we came back from a battle zone. Right? Many of us come back to the faith after with scars and wounds and a long time of being confused and lost and not knowing right from wrong, and not knowing where the truth is, and wishing somebody had told us way back when. It's that, that's what happened. Faith stopped to be communicated. All right, so they want to appoint a leader, which implies insurrection. And when they do that, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God. And they're doing this really to try to get the people to move back, because they know how God is going to react. Right? And Joshua speak on their behalf to try to assuage the people from their desire to go to Egypt. 
and do what they're doing, but to no avail. You see, when sin sets in the heart of man, when passion takes over, it's very difficult to push away. It's too late. It's too late. It's too hard. They're just going to do it. Then God's response. What is his response? His response is swift and clear. I will destroy this people. And Moses, I will start with you alone. Now, it's obvious that in doing so, God is teaching Moses about himself. He's teaching Moses about who Moses is. Let's see how. It is obvious that when God says, I am going to do this, Moses takes him pretty seriously. Moses doesn't for one second say, oh no, Lord, you're just joking, aren't you? No, 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 no. He knows God is absolutely serious, and this is what he set out to do. And by the way, again, let's remind ourselves, when we say God, we're saying our dear Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? The one who doesn't change. And I remind you of the words of Fatima by Our Lady herself. Do not offend God anymore, for he is already much offended. And war is punishment for sin. And so he decreed the Second World War as punishment for sin. Right? There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. God is consistent. However, prophetic intercession can block divine retribution. After Moses speaks, God relents from his plan. I repeat what I said. Prophetic intercession can block divine retribution. So you see the role that Our Lady plays in blocking divine retribution. And I've told you that many times Our Lady, number one role is essentially to protect us from God. Because she intercedes on our behalf before his throne. Now guess what? You all have received through baptism the prophetic gift. You can intercede. And your intercession can block divine retribution. That's the power you have. And all of us are going to be called accountable for what we've done with this power. For to whom much is given, much is required. And much has been given you. So you must become intercessors if you're not already. You must believe God gave you power intercession. He expects you to intercede because you are living in His friendship. So you must intercede the way Moses did. Now, Moses essentially poses the following theological problem. How is God to punish Israel and yet maintain the reputation of His power in the world? Essentially, Moses relies on the oath that God made. God said, I will make of your descendants, Abraham, a great nation. By my name, God had taken an oath by his name that he will make that happen. So Moses puts his faith in that oath that God took and nothing else. And he reminds God of that oath. Well, you took that oath. You're going to make that happen. If you've taken that oath and you do not make it happen, then all the nations will look at it and see that what you have done is essentially evil. Lord, you cannot do that. I call upon your name not to do that. So likewise, you've taken vows of wedding vows before the Lord. When you were married in the church before the Lord, the Lord took, made a promise to bless you if you're faithful to Him. 
So you call upon that oath when things get rocky in your marriage. You don't try to divorce. You stand before him and you remind him, remembrance of the oath he took when you got married. You don't put your faith in yourself or your spouse or your children or anybody else, but in the oath he took. And you remind him, this is your marriage. Shall your name be put to shame because of our weaknesses? We trust in your mercy. That's what it means. You see, Jesus, I trust in you. What is, what is, the, what is written on the other side of that sentence, by the way? What's implied by that? Yeah, yeah, but what is implied when I say I trust in you? I don't trust in myself. That's the implication. To the degree that I trust in you, I don't trust me. That's the implication. That's what you have to do. And he acts. Because God is faithful. God is neither a deceiver nor shall be deceived. St. Paul. That's the power of the covenant that he gave you. Call upon it in moments of Distress in moments of difficulty, call upon it. Whether it's financial, trying to find a job. Whether you have issues with your children. Whether you have difficulties with your wife, with your spouse, with your husband. You, you call upon the Lord and that oath He made when you got married. And He will see you through it. Absolutely see you through it. This is why Ezekiel later on will predict that Israel's restoration will happen. That's why... Part of the, that's why St. Paul also predicts that before the end of time, before the end of the world, Israel will be converted. Do you understand that now? God made a promise. God is not a liar. Therefore, Israel will be converted. Make sense? Yeah? Okay. So then... God relents, and then what does he do? He basically tells them that because of what you've done, because what you've done, you will not see the Holy Land. You will not enter the Holy Land. You will stay in the desert until all of you, 20 years and older, will have died. And then your children will enter. No, 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 Israel today, the Israelites, the Jews of today, before the end of time, the Jews will convert. No, just the Jews. Because of the promise that is given them as the people of Abraham. That promise stands. Now obviously the, 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 the conversion is open to all. But when you see all the Jews becoming Catholic, or a big proportion of them becoming Catholic, know that we're closer to the end of time. How closer, we don't know. But certainly closer. That's why... In many ways, the Vatican had seen the formation of the state of Israel as interesting. Because first you have to group them somewhere, right? And obviously now they are they're far from any notion of conversion at this point. They're materialistic. Most of them don't believe in God. Those who do believe in a form of Judaism that has nothing to do with the faith of the prophets. They're far from where they need to be. And I'm, and I'm saying this. You know, I, I do have a, a, a lot of love and admiration for what the Jewish people have done throughout the history to be able to bring to us the Messiah. So I'm not saying this, saying this, this disparagingly. I am saying it from a spiritual standpoint. There is a long way for them to go to come to where they need to be. Right? However, 
that is one of the signs that has to happen before the end of time occurs. Okay? Now, so God tells them that He will not let this generation get into the Holy Land. The, the rabbis would say that because Moses allowed the scouts to go to the, um, to do the, the whole scouting business, he too would not enter the Holy Land. Neither would Aaron. It's kind of interesting take they have on this, right? All right. So, interestingly enough, God is very specific when he tells them, because of what you have done, your children will suffer. So in this chapter, if you've not read it, go back and read it. You will see explicitly mentioned God speaking, saying, because of what you have done, your children will suffer. It's explicitly stated that the suffering brought upon the children is because of what the parents have done. So, because people contracept, the children will suffer. There's no mystery there. And the other interesting thing is that God punishes the succeeding generation as long as the evildoers live. So, that's why it is important to, for us to understand the power of the covenant and how to live in the covenant. Because our actions affect others tremendously. So if you understand that, you'll also understand the greater need for confession before a priest. Because our sins hurt the community, not just God. All right, so now what do the people do? They move from sin to folly. Now they are stricken with grief and remorse instead of being stricken with sorrow. And what do they decide to do? They decide to mount an expedition. Caleb and Joshua tell them, don't do that. God is not with you. You're going to fail. They do it. And many of them are killed. So what you have here is really an an anatomy of sin as it develops. It starts with ten men who use slander. Slander spreads like a virus and infects the hearts of people who already are secretly desiring to go back to Egypt. It festers in their heart and then they turn good into evil by saying that God had brought them there to kill them. At which point the covenantal curses are triggered and they are punished. However, through the intercession of Moses, they are not dead immediately. God extends their lives with the notion that they could potentially um, come back to him. By the way, another important element I want to show you. Remember when I told you many times that even though God's mercy is infinite, it does not mean that his acts of mercy are infinite, and that God extends mercy up to a certain point, and then he stops? That's the perfect case. God told them they will die in the desert and he, took, and he swore. When he takes an oath, it's irre- irrevocable. There is nothing they can do to change it. It's over. You understand that? So if you're living in the notion that, you know, God is merciful, He will always forgive us, you, gotta, you need to wake up. That's not true. There comes the point where God's forgiveness stops. And... It is entirely possible that for some of our relatives out there who have shunned the Lord over and over and over and over, that that point may, may, may be reached. We don't know that. I mean, this is the reality of sin. This is the reality of free will. This is the reality of the holiness of God and us staying before Him. So therefore, therefore, the implication here is if you are not interceding before the Lord, 
get going. Time is not with us in this battle. So, obviously, the remorse is also after God's decree. They're sorry, but not really because they offended God. They're sorry because of their state. Right? That's what they're really sorry about. God gave the decree, they're remorseful, it's over, it's too late. You can't change it. So they're going to live there now for 40 years. When they could have just crossed in and took, up, took the land over if they had had faith in God. If they had had faith in God. And that's what happens so often to people who today think that we should not have too many children. They end up in the wilderness. And God told them, your carcasses will lay there. Meaning you will not even be given a proper burial. Which has implication on their final state. It's really a grievous sin, this contraception business. It's so grievous. It's a poison to the soul. God have mercy on those who are using contraception. That's why you hear me talk about it so repeatedly. Because it is so deadly to the souls of those who do it, to their children, their children's children, to the society at large. All right. Now, in chapter 15, God gives them a set of rules. I'm going to highlight a number of those which are really important from our perspective. Uh, The one I want to highlight, first of all, the rules are given both to those who are Israelites and to those who are foreigners amongst them. God makes no distinction between the two. Again, I'll repeat that. There is a universalism in those laws that is given. It's, it's a nucleus. It's a, it's a seed that Jesus will bring to fruition when he comes. But the, the prophet already are growing it. There is this conscious and understanding of what Israel will be. But it's already there, right? which is very important. And again, to the credit of Israel, whereas the Greek would speak of barbarians... And the Egyptians will reserve the word men only to themselves. Right? In Israel, there is affirmed the universality of the dignity of the human being. And it is upheld. All right. The one thing I want to talk to you about is in, cha- in verses 22 through 31, there's these inadvertent brazen wrongdoing. These wrongdoings, for the most part, are liturgical. They have to do with the liturgy. So, essentially, what God is saying is this. If someone commits a crime or sin, I'm sorry, which is liturgical in nature, and he does it inadvertently, he didn't know, well, that sin has to be forgiven. Forgiveness is not automatic. God has to forgive. And He gives them a ritual required for that end. Okay? If, on the other hand, they do it brazenly, meaning they do it with intent, then their sin remains. And the expression that he uses I find fascinating. If they do it with raised hands. Because the gesture of raising your hand in ancient civilization was a gesture of power or a gesture of rebellion. That's the expression used to indicate when someone does something against the liturgy that is given and does it brazenly. Now, that is not acceptable. That, the, the sin remains. And they do it with a raised hand. Now, I find that fascinating. I discovered this today because you've heard me express my concern and sorrow about the fact that people do not respect the liturgy. 
in a Maronite liturgy, in Eastern liturgies, you should not be kneeling during the liturgy. You stand and you bow. People keep on doing it because of pride. They want to feel good and they do it their own way. I like to kneel, so I'll kneel. doesn't matter what God says. I know better. And they think that their prayers are accepted. Prayer will not be accepted if you keep on doing something like that when you've been told to stand. If you don't know, it's inadvertent. God will forgive you. But if you know and you continue to do it, you're really seeking His wrath. Because we don't fabricate liturgy. We don't make it. It's given to us. In the Latin rite, I find that very interesting. You're not supposed to open your arms when you say our Father. How do they do it? They open their hands and their arms are raised. Now, isn't that interesting? The expression here is with raised hands. And that's exactly what they do when they're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to hold hands. You're not supposed to open your arms during our Father. You're supposed to keep them folded in prayer. But they do it. And we think, oh, you know, there's no consequence. It doesn't really matter now, does it? So often I told you about not talking in church. And yet you still have people who think it's okay to say hello to my friend in church. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how much pride we have in wanting to do it our way and deciding what is right and what is wrong. Do you understand how we relate to them? God told us many times, He's inviting us, the Eucharist is there, we are to pray, we are to deepen our love, etc., etc., for God. And what do we do? We act like pagans. As soon as we see a friend, as soon as we see something that is socially, that we can relate to, so immediately we start talking in church and raising our voices. And, and who cares about the people trying to pray? Oh, my conversation is so important, I have to have it right now. Enough of that. You get my, my gist. The fundamental thing that needs to draw us is God's holiness and our love of God and the church. In these things, we really express our love for Him, and we give Him glory. Okay? So this is all liturgical. So, as I told you, if they do it with upraised hands, and the original setting of this metaphor is seen in the statues of ancient Near Eastern deities who were sculptured with an uplifted, outstretched right hand, bearing a spear, war axe, or lightning bolt. You know, uh, Zeus, right? The, the power, I am the strong one. When they do it with that kind of approach, that I know what is right, and I'm going to do it my way, that means that their sin is not forgiven. Okay. And he's teaching them this because he's going to have to stay 40 years in the desert. It doesn't mean that because they're staying in the desert that everything is kosher, they can do whatever they want. They've just expressed their rebellion. They've just expressed how they do not want to follow God, and God is now warning them about how they have to approach Him. However... In the case of the wood gatherer, what is the case? Somebody is found on the Sabbath gathering wood. They bring that person to Moses and they ask Moses, what shall we do? Moses asks God, what shall we do? And God says, take him outside the camp and stone him to death. You need to read those chapters before the study. That's what God said. Take him outside and stone him to death. Although brazen defiance of the Lord is punished with carrot, which is the punishment that you read in the chapter about when they are... Uh, brazen in their, um, in their approach to the liturgy, willful desecration of the Sabbath is met with even severer punishment. The offender is put to death. By the way, why, why stoning? Why is God telling them to stone him? Two reasons. Reason number one, 
by stoning someone, you do not have to touch a dead person. So you avoid being unclean. And the other reason, by stoning, you avoid spilling blood, which also means you avoid being unclean. It's really about ritual cleansiness. That's why stoning. It's not because they like cruelty or they like to uh, be uh, monsters, just that it's uh, avoiding ritual uh, uh, uncleanness that they use stoning. And God, you take him out, you stone him to death. What is, what is he doing that? He's doing this to make us aware that when we miss Sunday Mass, when we miss Sunday Mass, when we miss our obligation to come and to give glory to God, it is, it is worse than if half of the universe, all the stars in the galaxies of all the universe, were actually to disappear. Because our soul is plunged in utter darkness. When we do that, we are worse than stone. We are spiritually dead. Do you understand that? When we willfully miss Mass. By the way, willfully arriving late to church is also sinful. If, if something happens where you're delayed, you're delayed. Okay? But willfully arriving late to Mass is also sinful. That's why God is showing us with extreme measures how Horrible it would be for us to miss Sunday Mass. So even though these people were stuck in the wilderness, even though they would die there, they were still required, according to the covenant, to do what they, excuse me, to do what they must. Because if they didn't, guess what would happen? Their suffering would be compounded. Do you understand that all of Israel, once they understood what the covenant was like, their secret desire was that God would break the covenant. You get it? I'm hoping you're starting to feel the pressure. The covenant gov- governs every second of your existence. Every second, every action, every word, every glance, every bite you take, every moment you sleep are counted for your glory or your damnation. There is no neutral point. There is no five-minute break. You're either working on holiness or you're working on damnation. These are your two choices. And there are no excuses. So you look at this and what do you say? I can't do that. It's, too, it's impossible. And Jesus will respond, yes, it is impossible for you. Recognize it that it is impossible for you to do that. If you think you can save yourself, if you're sitting here and feeling pretty about yourself, and you're in a good spot, you're holy, you're good to go, you're in big trouble. He wants us to get to a point in our life where we recognize that I can't take a breath without Jesus. I, t- I can't take a step without Jesus. I cannot do a thing without Him. Once you get to that childlike trust in Him, you would have achieved union of love with Him. You'd be united to Him. And then what He wants is what you want. And what you want is what He wants. And then you can ask for anything you want, and He'll give it to you. All of that is to attract you and make you holy. That's why St. Paul says, work your salvation with fear and trembling. Realize every second of your life is counted. Remember the, when somebody, if, if you had a police come to your door, and not, not, you know, not, I'm not 
saying the police should come to your door. But I've never had the police come to my door other than over a stray cat or something like that. But in the movies, you always see this, right? Uh, you have the right to remain silent. Uh, everything that you say may be used against you. Well, yeah. In this case, you don't have the right to be silent. And everything you say is being used for, for or against you. Yeah. Now, when you take stock of your life in the Constance of Covenant, and then when you think of St. Joseph and Our Lady, you're blown away. You're just completely blown away of what Mary was able to achieve. Not a breath, not a thought, not a second, not a gesture, not a glance, not a smile that she did that was not in perfect and complete accord with God's will. If you truly think about it, you see that Mary is a human impossibility. I mean, it is literally a human impossibility for someone like Mary to exist. That's why we call her the masterpiece of creation. Not the stars, not the heavens, not the galaxies, not nothing compared to who she is. Every second, every breath, every thought, every, every fiber of her being was a complete, pure, and absolute yes to God's will. Even watching her son on the cross, even watching her son flogged, the whole thing, not a moment of rebellion, not a moment of uh, questioning, not a moment of doubt, not a moment of hesitation, nothing. And you think God doesn't love women? All right. I think as we walk with the Israelites in the desert, we're reminded that if our life is like a walk in the desert, then in a sense we're blessed because God is with us and that God is guiding us and that God wants to lead us to the promised land. I had a friend, I have a friend, who told me recently that uh, he was, he went to a store. I don't remember which store it is. But anyway, he's in the store. He had to go to the bathroom. So he went to the bathroom and he was actually reading the gospel in the bathroom. And, um, uh, and uh, it was a gospel where they're talking about the mercy of God particularly about um, uh, what John Paul II had said about the, the mercy of God. And he's coming towards the end. He had this chill, just reading about God's mercy, and a sense of peace came upon him. And then he became aware of the song that the store was playing, which he wasn't listening to until this moment. And the song, the refrain was, You belong to me, I belong to you. And then it was repeated at the end three times. Three times, you belong to me, you belong to me, you belong to me. Even in the bathroom, not a second of your life goes without God being with you. question is, are you with him? God bless you. Yes, yes, uh, two things. First of all, I am not advocating having children for the sake of having children. St. Thomas Aquinas clearly states that having too many children is just as sinful as not having any. In other words, if you have children without any thought in, put into the process, it's sinful. What I am saying to you is that you must understand that every sexual act is holy to the Lord. And that before every sexual act, the couple should be asking, Lord, is this time? You involve God in that process. He is the one leading you. And you let Him tell you what He wants you to do. You're living a life 
that is truly open to life. It's a responsible life when you do that. Yes, having just children because you feel like you want to make, make sex to your wife, you don't care about her and the children, that, that's completely sinful, that's unacceptable. On the other hand, having one or two children, right, the prefab family, because you want to have everything under control, is just as sinful. We are open to life, meaning we open to God, first and foremost. He comes in our home, He blesses us, and He tells us what to do. And He takes hold of it all, and He helps us through it. That's what it means. You understand? Okay, number two, overpopulation. There is a Sumerian myth equivalent to the story of the flood, except that in the Sumerian myth, the gods bring about the flood because of overpopulation. I'm talking 4,000 years before Christ. Overpopulation is, as John Paul II said, the civilization of death. It is a construct made to say that we are on our own. Earth gives us of its abundance on its own. There is no grace, there is no providence, there is no God to provide for us. And therefore, we have to do with what we have. Hence, let us be afraid of each other. And most essentially, let us be afraid of children. The good becomes evil, and evil becomes good. Okay? Yeah. Yes? On, on that particular aspect, actually, somebody did the little study. Anybody can do that. Uh, assume there are 6 billion people on this planet, which I am... I, I know. I don't trust any of the counting methods. I, I looked into it, by the way. They're still predicated upon three children per family. And they, the United Nations refused to change them. So ask yourself this question, who's counting? But let's assume there are 6 billion Take 6 billion and divide it by the surface of Texas. So I'm saying take all 6 billion people and get them to live in Texas. You'll get a density that is less than Holland. We have, God is the resource. See, the materialistic mind, the atheistic mind, talks about finite material resources. That's the whole point. God is saying, don't worry about that giant. I will provide. Yes. Not in the Eastern Rites. No. We don't need. All the Eastern Rites. All the Eastern Rites go to Constantinople, essentially, in the Roman Empire, and in the Eastern Roman Empire, where everyone showed ob obedience to the emperor by bowing. Deep bows. That's the other thing, by the way. When I say don't kneel, you know, in this, in, again, in the liturgy at one point, right, in our Maronite liturgy, the, the priest says, Lord, bless your people who... Yeah, what do the people do? Bow. You bow. Bow all the way down. Bow. No. I'm, I'm here. I'm zonked out. I have nothing to do with it. I'm nothing to do about you, but I'm just... I'm here. Yeah. You want God to bless you? Just, it's unbelievable. Bow. He doesn't say kneel. Bow. So you just bow. We've been Latinized. That's our problem. Yeah. If it is not in the rubric... You do not obey the priest. You stand and bow. And you gently remind the priest, this is the rubric. We do according to it. A priest cannot manufacture liturgy. A bishop cannot manufacture liturgy. But you have to take it with him personally. And if he keeps on doing it, change church. I mean, what can I do? What can I say? Yes, exactly. Orthodox are Eastern... We, many of the Eastern rites come from the Byzantine liturgy. No, no, it's not that it's very close. In, their, in the liturgy, uh, the many 
So the, the Byzantine church, Byzantine Catholic, has the same liturgy as the Orthodox. There's no difference. Many of the Eastern churches go back to East, the Eastern Roman Empire. And in the Eastern Roman Empire, to show obedience to the emperor, people used to bow. In the Western Roman Empire, to show obedience to the emperor, people knelt. These gestures were introduced in the liturgies with the thought that now you're not bowing before a mere mortal, you're bowing before the, the king of kings, or you're kneeling before the king of kings. Oftentimes the church will use what people are, will, will take what people are used to and incorporate that into the liturgy. In Africa, if when, they, when they do the confiteor in the Latin rite, you know, I confess to God, right? at one point you're supposed to beat your breast, right? Well, in Africa, beating at the breast is a sign of I'm the strongest, I'm the greatest. It's because it reminds of the gorilla, right? The gorilla who does that. So they don't do that gesture. What they do is that they open one hand and they use the back of the other one to slap it. That's how they express sorrow. That's what they do. Okay? So the church adapts itself to the culture. Back then, that's how it was done. It was carried forward. There was never a change. It was always maintained this way. You bow. So, back to the Maronite liturgy. The other really good example I can give you, if you ever have a chance to go to Massachusetts, go to the Maronite monks of the Adoration. These are monks who've taken the rubric and the order of St. Charbel, the life of St. Charbel, and they imitate him in everything. So when they come into the church, they bow down, they touch the ground, and they kiss it. Because this is what St. Charbel used to do. And the entire liturgy is standing and bowing. There is no kneeling other than the moment when the priest kneels before the altar. And I asked uh, a priest about that, and he told me, we should not even be doing this. And this is someone who knows the liturgy. He's a liturgist. He says, we should not even be doing this. There is no kneeling in the, in the, in the, in the Eastern rites. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely correct. This is absolutely true. Uh, this is actually the teaching of the church, and John Paul II has so well explained that. In the Catholic Church... The sexual act is the prayer of the body. In fact, the sexual act is absolutely necessary for growth in holiness for the couple. And you know that a couple has a uh, fruitful marital life when through the sexual act they're actually growing closer. Not just having children, they're growing closer. What does that mean? It means that as the year passes, their love refines and deepens. And they see themselves as having now a much better life than when they started. Because God is refining them through this sacramental union because they have not locked Him out. He is part of their life and blesses them abundantly according to His will for them. That doesn't mean there are no sufferings, there's no words or things that happen. Yes, like everybody else. But he's there sustaining them, moving them forward. And the one thing they will have is obedient children. They have obedient children. Even when they uh, scold their children. And even when they, they're, 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 they're tough on them, you don't have rebellion. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.